If you have your Bibles, I always read from the New King James unless I otherwise indicate. So I want to start tonight by looking at Isaiah chapter number 54. And we're going to read beginning in verse number 13. And as I mentioned to you at the end of the service this morning, we're going to talk about the management of fear, because in the last days, fear has wrapped itself around this planet, and many, many people have become slaves to fear, including believers, many believers, uh, even, if the, even if they're spirit-filled, they are um, no different than the people who don't know Jesus, in the sense that fear controls their life, fear of the future, fear of the unknown, fear of what the devil may do, fear, fear, and more fear. So we need to understand how the scriptures teach us to manage that and to live above it and beyond it in Jesus' name. So we're going to talk about that tonight. Isaiah chapter number 54, verse number 13, we'll read down to the end, which would be the end of the chapter. And so it says in verse number 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. If you have kids, those are great verses to stand on. Then verse 14, in righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, this is verse 15, indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows coals in the fire, who brings forth instruments for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. But verse 17, this is the one that charismatics know so well, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness comes from me, says the Lord. Their righteousness comes from me, says the Lord. Please notice in verse number 14 and at the end there, the last verse, we're talking about righteousness. It's like a sandwich here. There's a top bun, a bottom bun, and some information in between. You, when we talked this morning, we talked about the fact that when you became born again, you became the righteousness of God in Christ. You became the stronger man, the stronger woman, even if that's not how you see yourself. That's how God sees you, and that's the way we need to learn to see ourselves, not the way we see each other on a peripheral, lateral scale, but we need to see ourselves from God's vantage point, from his viewpoint, from heaven looking down. That's the way he wants us to see each other, and that's the way he wants us to see ourselves. So we became stronger than the strong man when we got saved, and especially when we get spirit-filled. The, uh, you know, the ante gets ramped up when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, and we pray in tongues and do all of that. We also become the righteousness of God, meaning to say all the sins of the past, all the history is all gone, and when God sees us, he sees us through the blood of Jesus. Okay, It's not our righteousness, it's the Lord's righteousness that is imputed and imparted to us. Okay, We didn't earn it, he did. And so it's his righteousness, but it is nonetheless the righteousness of God, and I want you to notice that in righteousness, it says in verse 14, we shall be established. All right, I am righteous, and so are you, not because of things we did, but because of things Jesus did. And he imparted and gave that to us. That's his gift to us. And then the last statement, in righteousness, it comes from me, our heritage as servants of the Lord, and our righteousness comes from God. Once again, it's not ours, it's his. 
But in between those two statements, we find three things that are mentioned and three things that are going on right now on planet Earth. Unless you've been living in the cave for the last 15 years, you can certainly agree that what's being talked about here addresses the times in which we live. It says, you, this would be verse 14, the second part of the verse, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Then verse 15, indeed, God says, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. So he's telling us up front, you're going to face three things. There will be oppression, there will be fear, and there will be terror. And you know in the world in which we live, all three of these are doing quite well on planet Earth. But God goes on to say, whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Not his, but for ours. Okay? And he also talks about the fact that these things shall surely assemble, but they don't come from God. But they do come from a source. Okay? They come from somewhere, but it's not God. God's not the one sending the oppression, God's not the one sending the fear, and God's not the one sending the terror. But they are coming from a source, and we need to know who that is. Of course, if you read your Bible, you know that's a no-brainer. It's the devil. He's the author of all of this stuff. Okay? He produces oppression, he produces fear, he produces terror, and if we don't know who we are in Christ, we can buy into this, and we become uh, prisoners to those three or any of the above. Okay? Whoever assembles against us, God says, shall fall for your sake. Then verse 16 is a verse that many people misunderstand. They're thinking, well, God created you know, evil and God does all of this. And, but that's not what the context suggests. The context suggests that God created the spoiler in the sense that this is tools that are used or he allows things to be created because the evil is there. And basically he's telling the reader, look, don't worry about the spoiler, because he says in verse 17, remember I said you read verses in context, no matter what the spoiler develops to destroy, nothing or no weapon he forms shall prosper against you. So he's acknowledging that there's a spoiler, he's acknowledging that there's evil, he's acknowledging that the oppression, the fear, and the terror comes from a source, but it's not God, and that no weapon he forms can prosper against us. He tells us straight up, don't worry about it, I'll take care of him. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. So these verses to me are very, very apropos for the day in which we live, the perilous times that the Bible describes just prior to the return of Jesus. For a Christian who knows who they are in Christ, these are exciting times. For a person who doesn't know these things, they are indeed perilous, scary, terror-filled times. We need to live above all of this and be people God can use in spite of the oppression, in spite of the fear, and in spite of the terror all around us. It shall not come near us is what God said. That's his intent. That's what he intends for us to read, believe, and live in the light of. Okay? I meet Christians all the time that are bound by fear. You wouldn't know the difference between them and a person who's on their way to hell because they don't know these things. And the Bible says our people perish for a lack of knowledge. If you don't know, you can't walk in the light of the knowledge and the facts presented to you in the Word of God. So go with me, if you would, to Mark chapter number 9. There's a second story that I want to read with you here today. We read a story this morning from Luke chapter 11, and this one we're going to read from Mark chapter number 9, and we're also going to begin in the 14th verse. Now remember, what I said to you earlier today still applies 
The Bible says that if we tried to add or chronicle all the miracles that Jesus did, the books of the world could not contain them all, meaning to say there are so many of them, you know, you'd be here for until next week trying to read them all and talk about them all and learn from them all. So that means that the stories and the testimonies that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were hand-selected by the Holy Spirit, and each story in here is in here for a purpose. The reader needs to see something, or a truth needs to be revealed, or a principle needs to be understood in order for the, the reader to become more complete in Christ. That's why this stuff is in here. Of all the stories that are out there, the Holy Spirit just picked these few and put them in here because there are things in these testimonies and in these stories that can benefit us in the day in which we live, as well as you know anybody else out there too. Beginning in the 14th verse, this is Mark chapter 9, verse 14. It says, when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Verse 15, immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered in verse 19 and said, O faithless generation, how, shall long, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. So verse 20, they brought him to Jesus. And when he saw him, this would be the spirit, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asks the father in verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But, listen to this carefully, listen to this question, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, if you can do anything, if you can do anything. Jesus replies in verse 23, if you can believe. All things are possible to him who believes. The father replies in verse 24, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then, of course, you're reading on. He cast that spirit out and set that child free. All right. Before we get too critical of the father, because I've heard preachers talk about, you know, the faithlessness of the father and the faithless generation and the the, the frustration that Jesus experienced with his own staff here. Before we get too critical from the, for these people, let's just back up a minute and take a look at the story and read these verses, like I said, in context. First of all, the father who comes with his demon-possessed child has heard about Jesus. He is not a staff member. He hasn't been traveling with Jesus. He hasn't seen the miracles. He hasn't heard the parables. He, didn't, he wasn't there for the Sermon on the Mount or any of this. He has heard about Jesus. Everybody's talking about him. You know, the miracle worker, the carpenter from Nazareth, whatever, you know. I, my neighbor went there, and he couldn't see, and he came back with his eyesight restored, and my friend, my uncle was there, and they couldn't walk, and they came back walking, and they threw his cane away. Everybody's talking about this guy. So the father hears about this, and he looks at his demon-possessed child being thrown into the water or thrown into the fire whenever the spirit will manifest. He's thinking, well, maybe this guy can help my kid. I can't get any help anywhere else, and I keep hearing about all these miracles, so I'll bring him to this Jesus, and I'll see if he can help him. So when he shows up, Jesus isn't there. It says in verse 14, he came to the disciples, Jesus came to the disciples, and there was this ongoing 
uh, discussion taking place, more or less like an argument, really. And he asks and finds out what's been going on. See, this father shows up with the child looking for Jesus, but he isn't there. He takes Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain to commune with God, and so he's gone for an unspecified amount of time. You know, these are, this is not the day of tweeting and Facebook paging and sending text messages and, you know, all of this. They don't know when he's coming back. He could be up there for an hour. He could be up there for four days. He could be up there for a week and a half. They don't know the other nine guys at the bottom of the hill. Remember, there were 12. So he took three and went up to the top of the mountain. He left the nine at the bottom of the hill waiting, and he said, we'll be back. Well, we'll be back means, you know, could be next week, could be tomorrow, could be yesterday, whatever. You know, they don't know. So here comes the father with the boy, and, and the father brings the child and says, where's Jesus? I need him to pray for my child. My child is demon-possessed and sorely vexed by the devil, and I need deliverance. And the nine disciples that are left at the bottom of the hill, they say, well, I'm sorry, Jesus isn't here, and we don't know when he's going to be back. He left a couple days ago with three of us. He's up at the top of the mountain there, but we don't know when he's coming back. But no problem, we've seen him do this. So we'll cast that spirit out. We've watched him do this. We've seen him do it lots of times, so we'll do this. You don't have to wait for Jesus. We'll take care of this. So the father, not knowing any different, you know, he's only heard. He hasn't really, he hasn't studied. He hasn't followed the, the you know, he, he break text and any of that. He doesn't know. He's just, you know, going on what he's heard. So he stands there and watches nine faith failures in a row. Now, if I'm the father and I don't know any better, I'm thinking, hmm, Maybe this isn't all the, it's, it's cracked up to be. Maybe this Jesus isn't the miracle worker that I've been hearing about. Maybe, maybe it's all just a bunch of hype. Because he watches nine of our Lord's closest disciples try and fail to cast that spirit out, one right after the other. And he's standing there watching this. So when he showed up, if he's like most of us, we show up with expectation, we show up with excitement and anticipation, you know. We've heard about this Jesus. He's going to help my son. He's going to set my, my boy free, etc., etc. He's very excited. So first he's disappointed that Jesus isn't there, and then he's standing there watching nine guys try and fail to cast that spirit out. So by the time he's, he's finished watching the ninth failure, Jesus shows up and says, what, what's been going on? What is this? What is this? And then, you know, they tell him, well, you know, here's what's been going on. And the father comes forward and blurts out the situation, and Jesus starts asking questions to find out what's been going on. And so he expresses this frustration. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long do I have to put up with you people? Bring the kid to me. So they brought the boy to Jesus, and again, the spirit sees him and throws him on the ground, and he wallows and foams and all of this. And then Jesus will ask the question, how long has this been happening to the boy? And the father replies, well, from the time he was a small child, he, the, the demon throws him into the fire, throws him into the water, trying to kill him. And, you know, we've got to yank him out and, put, you know, quench the flames, and it's a mess. Can you help us? If you can do anything. Because by this time, his faith has been sorely shattered. He showed up full of expectation, full of faith, but after watching nine guys try and nine guys fail, if I'm the father, I'm thinking maybe this guy isn't as cracked up as he's been told to be, and maybe I've just wasted my time. So if you, if you can do anything, you're the leader here, and I just watched nine of your closest disciples fail, but if you can do something, if you can, have compassion on us, have compassion on me, and help my boy. That's he's crying out. You know, he's desperate. Jesus replies with the classic statement. See, we like to quote verse 23, but read it in context and understand the story behind the statement. He says in verse 23, listen, he, he, toots it, he puts it right back on the Father. He says, it's not a question of what I can do, mister. It's a question of what you believe I can do. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Then the Father replies, 
He says, Lord, you know, it says he cried out with tears. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, the reason I love the story so much is because of the brutal honesty of this exchange. This father represents just about everybody I've ever met out there trying to use their faith but struggling with the problem of fear. It's, a, it's, a, it's an age-old battle between faith and fear, this war that goes on between these two ears up here, the war in our heads, the war of the mind, the faith versus the fear, the fear versus the faith. And the father just, just basically describes it with this statement. He blurts out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I know I should believe. I know faith can produce great things. I know this, but I'm battling with the fear. Help my unbelief. And this is where people are living these days. I believe, or I know I should believe, I know faith works. Without faith, you can't please God and all of this. But I am struggling with the fear. How do I handle this? How do I manage this? That's, that's what we need to find out. Because this guy is going through the same things you and I go through. The temptations to cave in because of the symptoms or because of the pain or because of the, the bank book. You know, God says he'll bless us, but the bank book says zero balance. And, you know, you're looking at all of these issues that contradict what God said. So there's this battle going on in between. And on top of that, in the perilous times in which we live, we've got the oppression, the fear, and the terror coming against us. And, and you know, at the bottom of the hour, you know, we need to know some things about who we are, like I mentioned earlier today, so that we can rise above all this and believe like Jesus says we should, because if we can believe, all things are possible to us who believe. Fear is the antithesis of faith. Fear is the opposite. It's the, it's the op- opposite of faith. It's what energizes the devil. It's what empowers him in a person's life, the same way faith empowers God in a person's life. So what I want to do with you for the remainder of our time tonight is look at certain ways in the Bible to manage the fear that comes against us all, the oppression, the fear, and the terror. Let's not be like the Father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's rise above that struggle, that inner battle, and win that fight once and for all so that we don't live our lives like spiritual roller coasters going up and down. One day we're in faith, then we're in fear, then we're in faith, then we're in fear, then we're up, then we're down, when we're happy, then we're sad then we feel spiritual, then we don't. You know, we ride this roller coaster for all of our lives. God wants us to get to a place where we rise consistently above all of this and live our lives in the light of who we are, because in the light of who we are, situations change, but the word never changes. Can anyone say amen? God doesn't change, okay? Our situations change, our feelings change, our moods change, our circumstances change, but God never changes. So we need to learn to rise above all of the changing things and begin to become an unchanging vessel that God can depend upon because we've managed the fear and it's no longer controlling us. We're controlling it. Okay? Managing fear in the last days. That's basically what we're talking about. So I want to talk to you about a few things that you can do in your life the way I do in mine each and every day so that I can live above this struggle that is expressed by the father of the boy that came to Jesus for help. Okay? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. All right? First of all, The first thing to understand about fear is that it will usurp authority in your life if you let it. And you cannot allow that, okay? It will come. God said so. Oppression, fear, and terror, they shall surely assemble, but not from me. So they're coming, but they're not coming from God. They're coming from our enemy and his enemy too, who is the devil. He's the author of this, okay? So the first thing we need to understand is we choose faith over fear. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. This is where people get confused. 
You know, they're looking for a feeling. Feelings come and feelings go. Choices are internal decisions apart from feelings. There are days when we feel great. There are days when we don't. There are days when we feel close to God, and there are days when we feel like he's a million miles away. The fact of the matter is, he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Amen? Feelings or no feelings. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I meet people all the time. You know, I'm so lonely. I feel like I'm all out there by myself. I said, well, do you believe the Bible? Yes. Well, no, you really don't, because you just said you feel alone. You feel lonely. No one cares. But Jesus said he cares, and he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So he's with you. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but see, but you're, you're basing your conclusions on feelings and not the word of God, and that's where the mistake is made. So number one, choose faith over fear. And when you make the decision to do this, whatever fears have taken hold of your life and are controlling you, you need to face them and drive them out. You can't hide and hope they go away because if you allow them to remain, they will remain. Hmm? If the devil has a way into your life and he knows he has a way in and you haven't shut the door, he's going to continue to access your life through that passageway because you haven't shut the door and he knows this. So you have to face the fears. I'll give you an example. Um, one of my pastors in the Philippines, she is a, is, a, is a graduate of our Bible school, and she works with her parents, and her parents, uh, you know, they're great soul winners. They've got dozens and dozens of churches under my authority. And so uh, the daughter was sent to the Bible school, and she went through the school and was a great student and graduated. And she's a young girl, 23, 24, like this. So she's now working with her parents in the field. But their headquarters is two and a half days away from us, almost three days, okay? Three days travel. They're on the other side of the country, on another island, actually two or three islands over. And to get there, man, unless you fly, you're on you know, buses and boats, and it's just, it takes three days. So we have leadership meetings twice a year in the compound where I get all my pastors together and they come in and we spend about two to three days when I teach them and I lay hands upon them and we impart and we talk and we discuss and, you know, we just make sure the whole ship is heading in the right direction and everybody's on the same page and the ship is on an even keel, spiritually speaking, and all of this. So I'll, I'll have them come in two, two times a year. So uh, one, a couple years ago, she, and I tell my pastors the same things I would tell my staff, listen, I'm giving you six months in advance, I'm giving you the dates for the next, what we call strategic planning meetings. Here are the dates for the next a series of meetings, six months out. I give them these dates six months out. I say, usually at the end of the strategic planning meeting that we're concluding, I'll say, okay, now the dates for the next one will be six months from now. Mark it down on your calendars, and they all write it down, you know, next November or next May or next whenever. Be back in the compound for three days, and, be, and I tell them, I say, I want you there on time. Don't come in late, okay? I, we start on time, we teach, we preach. I don't want you to miss any of this, because over there, we don't record things. It's not like here where you've got nice recording equipment, all kinds of audio-visual stuff. You don't have that there. So I said, you, I don't want you to miss any of this, so I want you to be here on time when we start. I want you in your seat at 8 o'clock in the morning on such and such a date. We start at 8 o'clock, not 8.05, not 8.10, 8. Be there and be on time. Okay, so they know. So she shows up two days late, three days, and she shows up on the third day. And her name was Charity. I said, Charity, where have you been? She said, well, you know, here's the deal. I left on time to get here, but the bus broke down. Then the uh, substitute bus broke down. Then we hit a chicken. Then we hit a cow. Then we hit, you know, whatever. And then there was this, there was a storm, and we couldn't, you know, Nikki's, <laughs> they're laughing. They, they know what we're talking about. You know, 
Then we got to the, to the pier, and there was a storm, and the Coast Guard would let us cross. We had to wait for the storm to pass because the waves were too high. And then we crossed over, and then the bus broke down again. You know, and long story short, Daddy, they call me Daddy. Long story short, Daddy, I tried to get here on time, but that's what happened. So now I'm two days late. I said, man, you've missed a lot of stuff that we can't go back over. I don't have time to go back over it for your sake because, you know, we've got other ground to cover today, and today's the last day. Why didn't you fly? Because you could fly. Your house is three hours from a commercial airport. You could have driven to that airport, taken a plane, a 45-minute flight to one city, and connected to our city, and been there in a flight time, been there in a matter of 60 minutes, 60 to 75 minutes, not counting layover time, but basically here and there, and you're there. I said, why didn't you take the plane? She says, well, Daddy, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm afraid of flying. I said, you? You're afraid of flying. She said, yes, sir. I've never been on an airplane, and it terrifies me, and I've never flown in my life. And this girl, she wins souls, man. She's fearless. And I was really shocked by that. I said, you're afraid of flying? You? She said, yeah, never been on an airplane, and I, I just, I'm terrified by the thought. I said, well, here's what we need to do. You need to face this fear and get it over with in your life. So for the next strategic planning meeting we have, which is six months from now, I'm going to buy you your plane tickets. It'll be my offering into your life. I'm going to help you overcome this fear, and you're going to get on that plane. I don't care if you throw up from the time you get on until the time you get off. You're going to fly those plane flights, and you're going to get to Osamas the way you should on time because the planes deliver you on time, and you're not wasting three days traveling when you could be there in a matter of 75 minutes. Long story short, short, you know, she, I bought her the ticket, and she's on the plane, and she flew with knees knocking and, you know, trembling and all of this, but she made it, and she's okay now. She's lived to tell the tale, and, you know, she's overcome the fear, and she's a much better soul winner for the fact that she faced the fear and overcame it. you got to understand that it's not going away until you address it, whatever it may be. It's not going away, because the, if the devil knows he's got you, uh, you know, up against the ropes, as they say, he's not going to let you off if that's where he's been able to bind you and tie you up and incapacitate you. Well, that's where he's going to continue to hammer away until you demonstrate to him that it's no longer an avenue of access into your life. So you have to choose faith over fear and face the fears. The second thing you need to do in these last days is don't let the fear paralyze your outreach. Everybody needs to be involved in outreach. If you're not involved in outreach, you're out of the will of God because everybody's supposed to be involved in some way. That doesn't mean you have to be a full-time missionary. It doesn't mean you have to be a full-time pastor. It doesn't mean you have to sell your house and move to Africa. No, but everybody's involved in some way. No one is supposed to be just sitting around reading their Bible all day long while the world dies and goes to hell. Everybody's supposed to be involved. Everybody has an assignment from God in some way, shape, fashion, or form as a minister of helps or whatever the case may be. All right? What happens is people become afraid of whatever this and afraid of whatever that, and they let that fear paralyze them, and they never fulfill their potential or their destiny in Christ because the fear keeps them bound. You can't let that happen. You need to remember that good things happen when you overcome your fears. Good things wait for you on the other side of that decision to face the fears and overcome them. Things that you'll never get any other way. Blessings that you'll never receive any other way until you hurdle, uh, go over the hurdle, I should say, and 
continue to reach out in the name of Jesus. Even with knees knocking and hands shaking and lips quivering, whatever the case may be, you need to overcome because when you do, good things happen. Things that you'll never get any other way. Okay? Keep reaching out. You know, if you're scared to go track witnessing or scared to go track distributing, whatever, go with somebody. Go knocking on doors, you know, go with somebody. Do what you need to do to overcome the fear, whatever the fears may be. Hmm? The best example of this that I can give to you is my own life and how I met and how I enjoy my wife, Ethel. Ethel's a Filipino. I met her in the Philippines. You know, I left the United States in September of 1980 with $20 and a one-way ticket and no way back to America. And, you know, when I was at Rama, uh, you know, it's very easy to be very full of faith when you're in a school where Kenneth Hagin is your teacher, you know, where you sit on the front row and he's sitting here, he's here and I'm there, and, you know, we listen to him every day. And then there's Kenneth Hagin Jr., and then all these great faith people come in, like Oral Roberts came in that year, and, uh, you know, Kenneth Copeland came in, all these people that have done some things for God and have learned how to walk by faith and not by sight. My year, 1979 to 1980, we had about seven or eight of these guys coming in, you know, one right after another. And the school was just as wonderful as it could be, and I learned so much, okay? And in, the, uh, in October of 1979, God spoke to my heart and said, when you leave and when you graduate in May, this next May, you go to the Philippines and you start your work there with this Filipino missionary that was there speaking at that time. I could take you to the place in the auditorium where I was sitting. And he starts speaking, and God spoke to me. I'm sitting in my seat, and he said, there's the man you work with. When you graduate in May, you go work with that guy. And so I had to actually go home and look on the map to find out where the Philippines was, because I didn't know where it was. And I looked, and there it is, you know, on the other side of the world. Okay, now understand, at that point of time in my life, my extent of world travel is Cleveland to Tulsa. That's it, Okay and maybe a few business trips in between, you know, around whatever, but, you know, really nowhere. And God's telling me to go overseas and spend time with this fella on the other side of the world. This was in October. So I start confessing, and I start declaring. You know, we're taught to confess and declare what we believe. You know, God's got an army, and I'm marching through, praise God, and I'm going to build churches, and I'm going to cast out devils, and I'm going to preach the gospel. That's what I'm talking about. And for, you know, six, seven months, from October through May, I'm roaming around the campus, you know, declaring my destiny and declaring my faith and all of that stuff. And that's easy to do when you're surrounded by 1,700 kids. 1,700 1700 other students doing the same thing, and you're in class, and they're in class, and people like Brother Hagen are your teachers. You know, and you're running around, you know, God's got an army. You know, but listen, when you go, when, you know, when the time came to actually board the airplane, you know, I I had an income tax return of $750 that year, and I used that money to buy my one-way plane ticket, because back then you could buy one-way plane tickets. You can't do that now, but you could back then. So I bought a one-way plane ticket, and I cleared all my debts and paid all my bills, cleaned out my savings account, whatever I had. I didn't have much in there, but I, I sold things. I had yard sales. I had all of that, you know, got rid of everything, put my car, which wasn't much anyway, put it into storage because I couldn't sell that right off, and I left for Los Angeles with $20 and a one-way plane ticket. And I wrote letters to this guy three times, three times from October to May, wrote him a letter. Back then, you wrote letters with stamps. Imagine that, letters with stamps. And, you know, you waited for the return. You waited for an answer, and I never got an answer from the man. Okay, I never even knew if he got the letters. I never knew if he got the letters and didn't care. I never knew if he got the letters and didn't want me to come. I had no idea. 
So it's easy to make all these confessions of faith when you're not actually at the brink of departure. But when I was in the airport in Los Angeles, sitting at the waiting area, all these hundreds of people are there, most of them Filipinos, and the, there's the airplane out there, and the light starts flashing, boarding now. I mean, fear came upon me big time. This cloud descended on me. Sitting in that seat, I felt like I was the loneliest, only man on the planet. You know, this fear cloud comes down on me because now we have to commit. If I get on that airplane and we take off, that's it. There's no turning back. And I've got $20, no money in the bank, and, no, and as far as I know, nobody on the other side to meet me. And no one was there to send me off, no parents, no well-wishers, no, no Bible study people, nothing. I was there on my own. And I'm sitting in that seat thinking, and I start praying, you know, uh, I said, God, uh, you know, I mean, is this really you? I mean, you know, I'm like that father, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, you know, if, if, if I'm making a mistake here, I need to hear like right now because they are lining up to get on that airplane. And if I get on that airplane and we go, that's it. And I'm sitting in that seat, and I mean, beads of sweat are on my head, and I'm praying in tongues, you know, Shandai, Shandai, see my bow tie, and I just, you know, I'm just hanging on for dear life trying to, you know, get through the moment. You know, and God speaks to me. He says, listen, I told you to go, get on that plane, and go. So, you know, and I'm, I mean, literally, in fear and trembling, knees knocking, I got on that airplane. It was a window seat. So I got on the plane and sat down in my seat, you know, kind of hunkered down and just held on for 14 hours from the departure in Los Angeles to the arrival in Manila, 14 hours. And I prayed in tongues the whole way, I had 14 hours of praying in tongues, looking out the window. Most of it was through the night, so you're looking out and it's just black, nothing you can see out there. And I'm just praying, dealing with the fear, 14 hours. The fear, the cloud would come and then I'd drive it off. Then the cloud would come back and I'd drive it off. The cloud would come back and I'd drive, get out of here. I'm, you know, and I'm praying and I'm, you know shaking in fear while I'm doing so. Got over on the other side, you know, we landed at 6, 5.30 in the morning, and uh, they rolled the jet to the, uh, you know, disembarkation area. There was no jetway back then. You had, they had stairs. They rolled to the side of the plane, and you walked down onto the tarmac and into this little Quonset hut, which was the international terminal at that time. And I, and I looked out the window. I mean, I had a window seat, and I looked out the window. I could see the stairs, and at the bottom of the stairs were two Philippine Marines with Uzi submachine guns going through the, going through the uh, carry-on baggage of the passengers as they got off the plane, looking for bombs and guns and weapons and plastic explosives because the Philippines at that time was under martial law. Marcos was in power, and he had declared martial law because of the communist rebels, and the entire country was in military lockdown. I mean... Uh, you know, there were soldiers on every street corner, tanks and armored personnel carriers and people with rifles all over the place, you know, and I'm flying into this with $20 and no way back to the U.S., and I don't even know if anybody's there to meet me, and I'm looking out the window, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, this is not Kansas anymore, Toto, you know, and again, that cloud of fear just came on me and tried to take over, and I just started praying again. I cried out to God a second time. I said, Lord, you know, help me, help me here. You know, I believe, help my unbelief. And God said, what did I tell you? What did I tell you? And I said, and I repeated it. Well, you told me to come, and you told me to meet up with this guy. And he said, well, then go do what I told you to do. I'll take good care of you. I'll never forget it. It was like somebody had 
pierced that balloon, that fear balloon with a little pin, and all the fear left. I said, oh, my God. I took a deep breath, you know, kind of collected myself, got up, pulled all my things out of the overhead bin. Because, you know, all the Filipinos, they're happy. They're home. They're pulling out all their luggage from the overhead bins, happy, jabbering in language. I don't know what they're saying. I'm sitting on the plane by myself. I don't know what they're saying. I don't understand the language. There's no one there, no friends to kind of lean on, you know, none of that stuff. I'm there by myself. So I get off the plane, make my way, you know, it's a longer story than we need for tonight, but I made my way south to Cebu, which was the last, that's as far as my ticket could take me, and I had my $20. And I said to the Lord, I said, if no one's here, I mean, I have no, I don't know what I'm going to do, I have no recourse, I, I don't know where to go, I have no money, I don't know anybody, I don't know the language, you know, the fear cloud comes back. So we got off the plane, and man, I'm looking around for anybody, somebody, and there's a little guy about uh, 50 yards away with a little tiny sign that says, Mike Keys. He's holding it like this, Mike Keys. Guy was about four foot ten, you know, just a little guy, you know. I never forget him. His name was Moises Tagayong. He was a staff member at the ministry that I was writing letters to, the leader of the ministry. He was working for the guy, and the, the guy had sent him up to Cebu to meet me. I never ran so fast in my life. I never grabbed anybody and held on so tightly in all my life. I, maybe the guy thought I had issues or something. I don't know. But I grabbed that guy, and I wouldn't let go. I mean, I, was, I had that guy in a bear hug. Thank God. There is, there is a God. There is a God. There is a God. You know, like that. Got to, got to uh, you know, the, my destination, which was on another city and another island, you know, and got there that night. Atlanta got there at about 5 that afternoon, the next day. And uh, I started preaching in that man's Bible school that night. Two hours after my arrival, I started my ministry two hours after. And we've been going guns, great guns for God ever since. And I met my wife two weeks later. I was sent down to Osamas, where we are now based. And she was the member of a local church there. And they were having a birthday party for her. And I was staying in the same house where she was living as a boarder. Okay? And, uh, you know, they brought me down. And I got in there and unpacked my stuff and looking around, you know, wow. And... Uh, they introduced me to her, and I thought, hmm. You know, I used to roam around Ramah saying, you know, I'm going to cast out devils, and I'm going to win souls, and I'm going to preach the gospel, and I'm going to build churches. That's what I'm talking about. And then I took one look at her, and then I thought, now that's what I'm talking about. Praise the Lord. You know, <laughs> praise God. You know, anyway, you know, the point is, if I was not willing or not determined enough to overcome the fears that came on several occasions big time against me to try and keep me from going in the first place. I never would have met her. We never would have started the ministry. She never would have married me. We never would have, we, we wouldn't be where we are today, okay? Would you agree with me that God knows what we need more than we know what we need? So many people cheat themselves out of so much because they let the fear paralyze them, and they stand back, and they will not commit to something because it's the unknown. And you need to understand, it's the unknown that makes the journey great. It's the unknown that proves that God is really who he says he is. When you step out of the predictable and move into the unpredictable, when you step out of the known into the unknown. And, you know, my life is a perfect example of this. You know, from then until now... We've conducted thousands of crusades. Only God knows how many. And we sat down recently and figured it out. We have conservatively, now this is a conservative number. It's not a hype. It's not evangelistic, you know, impress you with my great numbers thing. We have led to the Lord over 750,000 people to Jesus from September of 1980 until September of 2016. Over 750,000 people. Glory to God. 
150 churches, a Bible school, and they're going out and reproducing. Now, they're going all over the place. I don't even know where they're going, and they're holding crusades. So only God knows what actually is happening out there. But the point is, none of this would be happening if I had not been willing to fight through the fear and get on that plane and fly to an unknown destination, hoping that someone would meet me there, but not sure if they would. You know, it was the fear issue that I had to contend with and overcome. And I look back now, and now it's easy to say, we'll see what happened. But, you know, when you're facing it, it's something different altogether. Can anyone say amen? Anyone know what I'm talking about? You know, it's the fear cloud. You've got to break through that, the oppression, the fear, and the terror. And if you don't, it will paralyze you, and you'll live a life of compromise and regret because all of the things you could have had, you won't have. All of the people you could have met, you won't meet. And all of the things that God wanted to use you to do, you won't do. Because you'll be out of position. You'll be somewhere else, you know, hunkered down in the corner for the fear of what might happen if you commit to something that you can't predict the outcome of. Somebody say amen. I don't know about you, but I'm preaching myself happy. Praise the Lord. All right. So, number three. How to manage fear in the last days. Number one, choose faith over fear. Number two, don't let fear paralyze your outreach. Don't let fear crush your dreams, okay? Rise above it. Praise the Lord. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Number three, and this is very important, let God's peace replace the fear that comes against you. Let the peace of God that passes all understanding guard your heart and guard your mind. That's what the Bible says it should do, and that's what it's there to do. It's like a spiritual sentinel. It guards your heart and guards your mind. Peace. When I was praying in tongues on that airplane, the peace of God was what I used to drive that fear away. I just kept saying, God's in control. He loves me. He'll never do something and leave me out in the lurch like this. He'll take good care of me, you know, and, and the peace would come. And for a couple hours, I'd pray in tongues, and I'd be okay, and then the fear would come back, and we'd go through the same thing over and over again. Let the peace of God that passes all understanding guard your heart. If you're sitting here tonight and you're not at peace then you're not yet in faith the way you should be. Because if you're in faith, if I'm in faith the way I should be, there should be peace that goes with it. I should have a peace that God's in control. I'm standing on the word. The word is the final authority, and that's it. No matter what the devil tells me, no matter what people tell me, no matter what the stock market says, no matter what the, the president says or anybody else says, God says, and that's final authority in my life. And I have a peace about that. And I'm going to let that peace guard my heart and guard my mind. Look with me at John 14. Oh, no, wait a minute. A, a good verse for number two. I don't want to get on without giving you verses to support these points. Go with, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to show you something here before we get to the verses for point three. Sorry. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1. Okay? Let's go there. I want you to see something from Paul's ministry. Okay? So find 1 Corinthians and chapter 2 and verse 1, okay? Before we read this passage, would you agree with me that the Apostle Paul was mightily used of God, a great man, heavily anointed, raised the dead, started churches, you know, you read about it. He was the point person that introduced the gospel to the Gentile world. I mean, the man's got a lot of rewards in heaven waiting for him on rewards day. You and I are indirect results of his ministry here tonight. We're reading letters that he wrote. Okay, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the great Apostle Paul. Okay, got it. Let's begin reading in verse 1. This is his letter to the Corinthians. Listen to this. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech 
or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand or be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Your faith, he said, should be in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men. Now, we read verses like this. We talk about our demonstration of the Spirit. There should be a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. Our faith should not be in the wisdom of men. I got it. But people read right over verse 3, and they don't see it. As anointed as Paul was, as heavily as he was used by God to start the churches in the Gentile world, to go to all these different places, to do it in a very hostile environment under the umbrella of the Roman Empire which was brutal, to say the least. He did all of that, but I want you to notice he learned how to overcome the fear of doing what he was doing, where he was doing it. Because notice he says in verse 3, I was with you, that means the Corinthians, in Corinth, I was with you in three things, weakness, fear, and much trembling. The great apostle Paul the one that we love so much and talk about so much and preach so much about, the great Apostle Paul was with them in three things, fear, weakness, and trembling. And not just trembling, much trembling, much trembling. Have you ever seen somebody going through some kind of traumatic accident of some kind of car crash or something and they're on the side of the road and the whole thing has been so traumatic for them they can't get a grip? They are just, you know, the hands are shaking and their lips are quivering. They can't talk. I've seen people like this. They're in shock or they're just coming out of shock or they're just going into whatever. But, you know, they're, they're much, much trembling like this, you know, can't walk, can't talk like that. Paul, when he was in Corinth, he was preaching in weakness, fear, and much trembling. Now, you don't think of Paul that way. You don't think of Paul as being a man dealing with weakness, fear, and much trembling. But he just said it. He wrote this statement. This is not from somebody else. This is from him. Okay, you don't think of him that way. But this is what we have. Listen, if he had to do this, we have to do this. Okay? And if he could overcome, so can we. Look what he did because he did. You know, you have to face the fears. You can't let the fear paralyze you. He, he could have said, I'm out of here, man. This is a dangerous place. I don't need to be in Corinth. I, I got to go somewhere else. You know, no, he said, no, the Lord sent me here, and I'm going to preach, even though I'm, you know, it's weakness and fear and much trembling I'm dealing with. I'll preach with knees knocking and lips quivering. I will, I will, I will, but the power of God will sustain me. That's what you have to remember. Hmm? All right. Then, John 14, 27, for the third and final point that we're sharing here tonight. There's other points, but we'd be here all night. John 14 and 27. Jesus is the speaker. And you've read these verses many times. Here's what it says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Hmm. So if Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid, who's responsible? We are. You can't blame God. You can't blame the devil. You can't look at someone else and say, you're the problem. No, no, no. He said, you, let not your heart be troubled. You, let it not be afraid. It's your heart. Don't let it be troubled, and don't let it be afraid. The words let means 
I'm in control. I can let it be troubled or I can let it not be troubled. I can be afraid or I can not be afraid. I choose. Let not my heart be troubled. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. See, you can't get this anywhere else. You can't get this peace in the world. You can't get it from education. You can't get it from a good job. You can't get it from a a bundle of money. You can't get it anywhere else. Only Jesus has it, and only Jesus can give it. He said, this is my peace I give to you. Once again, if you're not in peace tonight, you need to step back and find out what it is that's robbing you of your peace and address it. I have to do this in my life, just like you have to do it in yours. I'm no different than you, just like Paul was no different than the Corinthians. Okay? They were dealing with weakness, fear, and trembling, and so was he. Okay? The point is, we all have to come to a place where we manage the fear in these last days. You're never going to be free from it until the devil is thrown off the planet and thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. As long as he's here on the earth, fear will be here because he's the author of it. And it's his primary weapon to neutralize Christians in these last days is this fear that he brings to us in many different forms, fashions, and ways. And I need to live above it, and so do you. You can't get rid of it, but you have to manage it in such a way that it doesn't shut you down and drive you into a closet somewhere for 40 years waiting for Jesus to return. We need to be out there on the front lines engaging the enemy and getting in people's lives and getting into their face and talk to them about the Lord and give them the goods and give them the truth because we love them. Amen? We love people, so we tell them the truth, whether they like it or not. We tell them the truth. And that's how you really express true biblical love, giving people the truth. So, again, managing the fear in these last days, okay? It's not something that God is going to do for you any more than God's going to do it for me, okay? I'm choosing to walk by faith and not by sight. I am choosing to move beyond this battle in my mind between faith and fear. I will, de- I will develop the ability to address it to drive it out and consistently guard my heart against it with the peace that passes all understanding. And I'm not going to let these fears paralyze my outreach for the Lord. I'm going to work through the fears that come when they come, as often as they come, and praise the Lord someday. As I mentioned earlier today, we're going to stand before the Lord, and I'm going to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? That's what I want to hear. I'm sure that's what you want to hear too. So again, if you're dealing with any of this, you got to address it. you got to address it and talk to the Lord with the Lord, with his help, and deal with it and get rid of it once and for all in your life. Because if you don't, it's going to just keep going back around and around and around and around, and you'll be a mental wreck. And that's not what Jesus died to provide for us. Amen? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word tonight. We believe that your word is sown in good ground, Lord. Help us, help all of us to be people who understand the world in which we live, understand the tactics and tools of the enemy, and live above them in Jesus' name, addressing them, challenging them, confronting them, and overcoming them. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live in fear. You have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. There will be oppression, there will be fear, and there will be terror. More so, Lord, as your return draws closer and closer, but it does not have to drive us Below ground, it doesn't have to neutralize us. It does not have to make us of none effect. So help us, Lord, tonight to recollect ourselves. If we're born again, if we're blood-bought and blood-washed, we need to act like it, live like it, and talk like it so that you can use us the way you want to in these last days. We praise and we thank you for this. 
In Jesus' name, everybody agreed, said together, Amen. All right.